All right. Well, awesome singing with you all. It's just great to hear the voices and sing as one. We're going to be in 1 Peter today. If you want to turn there, 1 Peter 1. Um, I'm guessing if you're here today, you have some measure of belief or hope that God is good and gives good gifts. Perhaps for you, that is merely a faint hope and wish, something you want to believe but struggle to do so, or perhaps you are absolutely certain of that, and you've seen it time and again. But either way, I, I wonder what effect the good gifts of God has on you. How do the good gifts of God and the goodness of God affect your view of God himself? Now, it is perfectly right and understandable to come to God for his good gifts. But if receiving his gifts, especially receiving his goodness and salvation, doesn't lead us to come to him for himself, then we have not rightly received and appropriated his gifts to us. To put it simply, God's gifts, especially his gift of salvation, is meant to bring us to God. Is meant to make us God-centered, make us all about God. To make us naturally overflow with praise and love and delight in God himself. And so our purpose as a church, even as we gather each week and gather today, isn't only to get you saved or to give you some benefits to improve your life. No, our purpose is to help you see the goodness, the grace, and the glory of your creator and savior God so that you would live your life worshiping him, trusting in him, clinging to him, delighting him, and beholding him more and more. And this is our purpose because this is, we believe, God's purpose. And so today, we're not only going to consider the wonderful truths of Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and what God did in that, we're going to consider the end to which these gifts, these benefits are given. We're going to look at and consider the God-centeredness of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel. And to do this, we're going to use a passage from 1 Peter 1. Uh, we'll be in verses 3 through 9. So start out in verse 3. Peter begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're just going to stop there. We'll go on, but we're going to stop there for now. Now, Peter is going to go on and explain why God is to be blessed. Why Peter is saying this thing. Why Peter is making move to make such an emphatic statement. He's going to go on to explain the goodness, the, the salvation and hope that is ours in Christ. We'll get there. But consider how he begins. Blessed means worthy of praise and adoration. Worthy of being worshipped, made much of, celebrated, honored. If you go to someone's home and they make you an amazing three-course, five-course meal, appetizer, main course, dessert, whatever else, and it's amazing and delicious, you celebrate, you praise the cook for what they've done. You, you well up and overflow with amazement and thankfulness. Likewise, if someone gives you an unexpected gift, 
that is both costly and very thoughtful, and it's not your birthday or anything, they just want to give you a gift. You well up and overflow with thankfulness and praise of them. You don't have to be told to be thankful, to speak honorably, to delight in their kindness. It is a right and natural response when somebody does something good for you, does something that is praiseworthy. Well, that's something of what is happening with Peter here. He's considering what God has done for us. He's considering the salvation that God has secured for us through Jesus, and he wells up and overflows with praise and adoration and wonder and joy. Uh, perhaps your Bibles has, has an exclamation point here, and that is warranted. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Peter talks about this, even when he's writing about this, what God has done for us in Jesus, he does so with fullness of joy and celebration and happiness and wonder and worship. And he's right to do so. This is an appropriate response. So it's worth asking, do you know something of this? Do you know something of this joy of salvation? Have you seen at least a degree of the wonder of God's praiseworthiness, of his blessedness? Perhaps you were once familiar with it, but you no longer sense it. This is not a guilt trip to just feel something that doesn't really work. Commands or guilt trips to feel a certain way aren't very effective. That's not how our emotions work. But this is a reminder to diligently behold God and what he's done for you. Read his word where he reveals his revelation of himself. Meditate on his truths. Give thanks to him for his character, his acts. Peer in and behold him for who he is. And when you don't when you struggle at this, pray the words of David, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Surely that is a prayer that God delights to answer. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. In other words, do not be okay with a lack of joy in the salvation that God has accomplished for you. Fight for this joy. It is God's will that you have this joy. But then notice something else here. This joy that Peter has as he's considering God and his salvation isn't a gift-centered joy, but a God-centered joy. Now, of course, he rejoices in the gift of salvation, but that ultimately leads him to rejoice in the giver of the gift, namely God. He, he doesn't stop with, wow, look at what I have. Look at the great fortune, the great benefits that have come to me. No, he moves on from there and to say, wow, what a great God. Look at the good and merciful and worthy God behind this. Again, salvation is meant to make us turn to God and be God-centered. Meant to change our view of affections towards disposition towards God. Salvation is not merely about you and what you get out of it not merely about how it improves your life, although it does, of course, but it is also to make you bless the Lord. Which means that there's a reason that we 
gather each week, and in doing so, we keep remembering. We keep telling ourselves and beholding who God is and what he's done. There is a goodness and rightness to coming back and again and again reflecting on what God has done for us, that we might rightly bless him. So what is this salvation? What is this gift that leads Peter to begin with these words? Well, he goes on, starting halfway through verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All right, let's work through this a bit. Notice first that there are two statements of cause here. Two statements of what is bringing about, causing, securing, initiating this great salvation. According to his great mercy, that's one, and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These are the causes. First of all, our salvation is according to, dependent on, initiated by God's great mercy. This word could be translated pity, God's great pity, God, or compassion, God's great compassion. And this, of course, pushes back against any tendency, any inkling in ourselves to think that we deserve this, that God owes us. To think that God owes us a long, happy, good life with hope for life to come. To think that our salvation is in any way dependent on our decency as a human being, our morality, our religion, our efforts, our kindness, because we're, we are one of the good and, and reasonable and decent ones, because we haven't committed any of those real heinous sins. No, God's goodness to us and his gift of salvation is all according to his great mercy, which is just another way of saying that it's all on his end. It's all what he does because of who he is. Every good thing that you have including salvation, if you are, have come to Christ by faith, owes to God having undeserved compassion, pity, and mercy on you. You likely hear this word mercy a lot. If you've been in church, you've heard this word mercy a lot. So it's easy to lose sight of its significance. But if we are to rightly praise God for his mercy, for his salvation, we have to remember that we are sinners in need of God's grace and saved only by God's grace. This isn't meant to cause you to despair needlessly, but it is meant to cause you to despair of any other hope or comfort other than Christ. Yours and my sin and guilt, in light of God's perfect holiness and justice and perfections, is meant to drive us to find comfort and rest and peace in him alone and nowhere else. And so that ultimately, we will be led to say with Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he has done it. 
Now, God's great mercy is not just an abstract idea. It's not just a character trait that has no real substance in reality. And so, Peter speaks of the other cause of our salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The death and resurrection of Jesus is God's mercy in action, is God's mercy fleshed out in real time and space. God doesn't just claim to be merciful and loving, he, he acts, he shows it, he demonstrates it. And as he does so in the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is real power. There, his re- death and resurrection accomplishes something. It brings a real change. It is powerful and effective. As you go through this letter of 1 Peter here, you see Peter talking some of, of this. So in chapter 2, he says, He, that is Jesus, himself bore our sins in his body. By his wounds you have been healed. So there's healing in the death of Jesus. In chapter 3, he says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so it is not only that God is merciful and we should just hope, just wish that God will be merciful to me. No, in his mercy, God sends Jesus into the world to bear our sin, to give us peace with God, to bring us to God, to bring us healing. God's mercy leads him to act, leads him to do all that is necessary to atone for our sin. That is to justly justify the unjust or to make right the righteous in a right way. He bears our sin in his body. And again, in this, we see that God's purpose is God-centered. God does something astoundingly, astonishingly great and sacrificial and loving and surprising, not just to save us, but to turn us towards himself, to make us praise him, to compel us to live for him. His purpose is not only to make us saved people, to make, but make us people who praise and bless him for what he's done. Peter goes on to explain what he's done. Uh, In that passage we just read, he caused us to be born again. That is, he's made us radically new, changed us from the inside out, given us new desires and affections and will. The salvation that God brings is not just a, a choice on our part to live differently, to be more religious, to believe certain things that we didn't believe before, though it includes all of that. But the Bible, that God, the Bible tells us that the salvation that God's, God brings radically changes us. It, it's not us radically changing ourselves. That's how every other religion works. But it is God changing us, which is part of why it is such good news. And part of this change, as Peter says, is that we are born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So right now, those who are in Christ have this, this hope, this hope in an eternal life, resurrected life, in the presence of God, surrounded by his goodness, 
at peace with God, in a place where righteousness dwells, where, where there's no sin or the effects of sin, for all eternity. As we just saw in 1 Corinthians, if you've been with us, as we've been going through 1 Corinthians, the hope that, that is ours in Christ, the Christian hope, is not a hope for this life only. It is not just some tips and tricks to, to get the most out of this life. But it is a hope beyond this life, beyond death. Which means that this is not our one shot at happiness. This is not our one shot at success, to, to prove ourselves, to experience joy, to make something of ourselves. We will experience the greatest joys possible for all eternity. So we do not need despair. We need not live hopelessly, aimlessly. We need not think that God has given up on us. If we are in Christ by faith, we have a sure and certain hope. Um, Peter gives various characteristics of this hope. He says it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Uh, undefiled means that it is pure and perfect, unfading, that it will never fade in its glories and joys and perfections. Everything in this life fades. Everything has a fading quality in this life. Even the best things, the best experiences in this life have a fading, perishing quality to them. They come to an end. When you pursue, a, when you pursue joy as an end in itself apart from God, it proves elusive. You all know this. But the eternal life to come will be unfading. It will not be elusive. It will never fade in its beauty, its joys, its satisfaction, its goodness. This is the living hope that is ours due to his great mercy. So Peter began with this cry of worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He then explains why this is appropriate, the salvation and hope that God has accomplished. And then in the last part of our passage today, he unpacks, he explains what kind of response this ought to bring about in us. How ought we to respond to such great mercy? Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." When you put this all together, you see that what God has done for you is meant to cause you to believe in him, to love him, and to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. God is not about creating people who simply believe in him but don't love him. People who believe but don't rejoice. He is about creating a loving and rejoicing people. Now, it is true that our love and our joy and all of the other fruit of the Spirit, as they are called, they don't come first. They don't 
save you. In other words, you aren't first commanded to love God and rejoice in him so that he will be gracious to you. No, it, it's the other way around. When you see his gracious, great mercy salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus, it is meant to have the effect of bringing about your trust, your joyful embracing, your, your love, your worship, and your obedience. And not just once, not just temporarily, but in a way that sustains through all of life, even through trials, as Peter makes clear. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And notice how Peter describes these trials. He says they are temporary. For a little while. They, uh, they are not unfading like our hope. They are not imperishable, but perishable. As Paul says in Romans 8, our sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Your pain won't last. Your feelings of hopelessness won't last. Your thorns in the flesh, your battles, the things you fight against, your temptations won't last. You're dealing with trauma won't last. These are all for a little while. Though it doesn't always feel like a little while. But not only that, they are fulfilling a purpose, even now. They're not just temporary, but they actually have a purpose, which helps us as we go through them. They, as Peter says, they test and prove the genuineness of your faith. They're not random. Your, your trials, your Battling with temptation, your pain, your suffering are not meaningless or random. That doesn't mean they're good in and of themselves, but God uses them for good. They're purposeful. And among other things, God is using them to cause your faith to be purified, shown to be genuine, not just a flash in the pan, not also just of you, but of God, something that is real and lasting. And in this way, trials are necessary because having our faith proved to be genuine is valuable and necessary. And then look at the end of verse 8, where I want to wrap this up. Uh, in verse 8, you have a purpose statement. He says, so that... You or your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the ultimate purpose of God's salvation, of your believing in him now, of trials coming to test and strengthen and confirm your faith, of God's mighty power guarding your faith, guarding you through faith until the end, the ultimate purpose of this is so that you might give praise and glory to, and honor to Jesus when he returns. In other words, that you might be like Peter and cry out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That praise and awe and wonder of God would naturally flow out, well up and flow forth from you beginning now and into eternity. That is what God is after. 
The idea here is that true praise is not forced, is not merely commanded, though God does command us to praise him, but it is ultimately comes about and meant to be a response to, be compelled by seeing something to be truly worthy of praise, truly good, worthy of our full devotion and enjoyment, namely God. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrestles with this idea. He, he speaks to it um, as he tries to understand the idea that God commands the praise of himself, which he does again and again. And so C.S. Lewis writes, But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment, something that we don't have to be told to do, spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise, and not because people are commanded to do it. Lovers praising their mistresses, Romeo praising Juliet and vice versa. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical pers personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Sometimes, he says. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. And he, he finishes here, my whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards God himself, the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what we de indeed cannot help but doing about everything else we value. In other words, the kind of praise, but more than that, just the kind of reaction, response, living that God is after in us is an innate, enjoying, delighting, rejoicing kind of praise. Something that naturally wells up and overflows as we find him to be increasingly good and worthy and great and glorious. We behold what he's done, what he's given to us. And this leads us to not only thank him for his gifts and move on, but to come to him and see how good he is. And then our whole life cries out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If there was a theme song to your life that cried out all the time, it would be blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you are rejoicing and in times of peace and success and rest, you would cry out in in one way or another, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Likewise, when you are in times of trial and tension and stress and pain, your, your life would cry out still, like Job, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even in times which may seem like the most of just mundane, putting one foot in front of the other, going through the daily tasks, 
and responsibilities. We say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That all of our thinking, our, all of our feeling, all of our actions, all of our affections and longings and strivings and rest, in all of these times, our life would cry out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.